Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for the Bluff Church. If you live in the Poplar Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Just a moment, Michael York is going to come and share his message. I'd like to just take a moment just to prepare our hearts before he comes. I want to, I want to tell you, it, it's really a good thing to have a good reputation. And before I really met Michael York, or before I remember meeting Michael York, I met his reputation. I was actually doing lunch with one of our blessed members, and I was talking about different people, and he said, hey, have you met Michael yet? said, no, I don't know. You have to meet Michael York. You need to meet him. Here, here I'm going to give you his number. You've got to meet this guy. I'm like, okay, okay. It is such an honor to have people think well of you. But it is truly special if what people say about you is what God has done in your life. And that's, that's Michael York, because he's got a good reputation of what God has done in his life. I had the privilege of really sitting down with him, and I tell you, if, if you know Michael, you know that he's the person that's really easy to make a good friend really quick. He has a gentle spirit that listens. He's cared about, he cared about my well-being. But boy, his story is just a reminder that no matter where you are in life, no matter where you are today or where you've come from, God can pick you up and take you anywhere. And, um, and I just, I left so encouraged after spending time with Michael. I came home and I sat down and I went over my day with Rachel. She said, how'd your day go? I said, oh, it went great. I met Michael York today. I like him. You ought to meet him. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I've just been really encouraged by, by him. And, and, um, and when you stand before your peers, when you stand before people, it's not easy for everyone to stand up and to speak. It's, it's hard enough just to share God's word, let alone to share your story, your testimony, where you've been. It leaves you vulnerable. It requires humility. And it requires courage. And so I'm really grateful that he's been willing to come and to share with us this morning. And I'd like for us to just spend some time in prayer, just to prepare our hearts before he comes. Let's pray right now. Lord, I pray, I pray for Michael today. Lord, I know he has to be nervous. I know he has to be stressed, and yet I know he's probably also really excited. Lord, I pray that you would just speak through him and use, use what you've done through his life to be an encouragement for us. Lord, I know there's probably several here who, who are discouraged on where they are or where they've come from, and I pray that this would be a message of encouragement and hope of the power of you being able to change people's lives. 
And Lord, I pray, I pray that, that the blessing he has of a reputation of what God has done would be, a, would be something that we would all have in our lives. That when people speak of us, that they speak of what great things you have done in our hearts. I love you, Lord. And it's in your son's name that we all pray. Amen. Michael. Can you hear me? Good morning. I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm already a wreck. I've been a wreck for the last two weeks, but I'm just so thankful for what God has done for me. I'm blown away. And I come here today because I want it for everybody. I want it for everybody. Uh, this has been coming for quite some time now. God's put it on my heart that you need to go share with the people that you sit with every week, the people that you sit in living rooms with on Tuesday nights. And a lot of people here, uh, I've shared with some of my story, and uh, I believe it's touched them. But something God was telling me is that although I spent 28 years in addiction, deep addiction, hardcore addiction. The devil had me beat down, believing that that's all I was ever going to be. I thought all I was ever going to be was a meth cook. It's the only thing I was ever going to be good at. I didn't know about a God who loved me. I didn't know what God's Word said about me. But I believe there's some people here today that may have some family members that are struggling with addiction, or maybe even you're struggling with addiction. You know, we all have addictions, and we all have struggles, and that's really what this is all about. Uh, I'm not a preacher, <laughs> definitely not a pe preacher. I have a hard time uh, even conversating with people. Sometimes I find have a hard time talking, finding, making conversation, but one thing I've learned is I can always talk about God. It doesn't matter whether I'm at work, at church, on the ball field, wherever. Herschel Deaton, I love you, man. <laughs> I got some really good people here supporting me today, and I appreciate all the prayers and the words of encouragement that come out for me throughout the week. Uh, like I said, I've, I've really felt like this message that God was telling me to give to you all today was, wasn't really for specifically the addict, but maybe a family member. But in the last couple of weeks, as I've been preparing this message and going over my testimony, wow, wow. God said, this is for you. <laughs> this is for you just as much as it is for them. And uh, I've just been reflecting on all the love and mercy that's been uh, poured out on my life. Uh, this is only my second time ever sharing my testimony. Uh, the first time was back in December. Uh, at Palace of Praise, and uh, I'll get to that. That was some God's work right there that he put in front of me, and uh, God called me to go there, and I went there. So anyway, uh, y'all ready for this? <laughs> this is going to, this is, I'm going to take y'all down a pretty nasty road here, but uh, the reason that I'm going to share all these ugly things 
is because I think that you need to see the progression of how when one starts using or drinking a little bit or maybe even just hanging around somebody who drinks or smokes pot, whatever it is, you just kind of, your heart gets hardened a little bit more and things that uh, you didn't believe was right before, you know. It started for me at a very young age. Uh, if y'all are ready for this, I'm going to go ahead and get into it. Uh, I want to share 2 Corinthians 5.17 with you. First of all, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And that's where I stand today. The old is gone. I am a new me. The life that I'm fixing to tell you about seems so far away sometimes that it, it was two lives lived. I lived as the old Michael York and the new Michael York. Thank you, Jesus. So uh, my first memory of getting high was at the age of about four years old. My dad and his buddy would uh, give me hits off the bong and sit around and laugh at me and thought it was funny, see me stumbling around and my head falling back on the couch. And uh, My uh, father was very abusive. He beat me and my mom a lot and... Uh, It built up a lot of aggression in me at a very young age. I didn't really know how to deal with the emotions. I knew that I didn't like what was happening to my mom, and I wanted to put a stop to it. But, you know, God has shown me something there, too, that, you know, my dad then was just who I was becoming, you know, and not so much because of, uh, because of who he was, but he lost his uh, parents at a very young age, and... Uh, had a bunch of siblings to take care of, and I think he just didn't know what to do, and he didn't know how to handle what was going on, and uh, he used alcohol, uh, Xanax, paint thinner, huffing paint thinner, whatever, you know, he could get his hands on. That's what he did, and I, and I think it was just a cover-up, you know. Uh, addiction is very much a heart issue, you know. You don't want to feel. You don't want to feel the things that you're feeling, and you don't know how to deal with those issues, so... Uh, what once started out as having fun is now is just a cover-up, something that you can kind of hide underneath. But uh, when I was five years old, my dad got busted with 20 pounds of marijuana, and uh, I still picture it vividly. Uh, his best friend come to the door. This was the guy that he spent more time with, me or my mom. So, you know, I thought, well, that's his friend. You know, that's, he's important. To my dad because he's with him more than he is with us. He cares more about him, but he walked in our front door and set a trash bag full of pot down and walked out, and it wasn't long the cops kicked in the door and uh, shot my dog. But anyway, uh, at, that, at that point, uh, I went on to live with my grandparents. Wonderful, wonderful time in my life. I mean, my grandparents were so good to me. My grandmother uh, would become my encourager throughout my life, but they owned a little country store down on 142 Highway, and I become quite the heathen. <laughs> I'd run around that store and uh, drank a lot of Mogan David grape wine <laughs> and Miller ponies, and you know, it, it seems odd to me now. I can't think about my kids doing that, but it was just normal. You know, they didn't stop me. Grabbing a Miller pony out of the beer cooler was just as normal as grabbing chocolate milk out of the freezer and drinking it. So, 
so drinking at a very young age, uh, you know, of course, then I wasn't trying to cover up anything. It was just something I enjoyed the taste of and I really liked. But I would find out later on that uh, where it was going to take me. So uh, I got into sports, was really big into baseball, loved playing baseball, was quite good at it. But they would drop me off down at Whiteley Park to play park league ball, and my dad had this buddy. And uh, after the ball games, he would come by and give me a pint of Jim Beam whiskey and two joints. And I would walk around South Popper Bluff drinking whiskey at nine years old, smoking joints. And still at this point, you know, I don't think that this is anything that I'm trying to hide. You know, there was probably emotions that I was trying to cover up at that point, too. But uh, that went on uh, pretty much on on a regular basis. Uh, I had some neighbors around the neighborhood, and I was, like I said, I was quite the heathen, so they would drag me to church anytime they could. And uh, somewhere around the age of nine, uh, a Holy Spirit moved me out of a pew to an altar, and I got saved, and I felt something that I'd never felt before. But I just didn't know what to do with it, you know, at that point. I knew that I was saved. I knew that God had come into my heart, but I just wasn't sure where to go with it. Anyway, that moving on from there, uh, get into high school, freshman year. uh, Going to school, uh, I always drank before school every day, uh, Strawberry Hill wine. And uh, once I got to school, we had the hill back then where everybody smoked at. Well, you could go back there and score a couple joints and stand right out there and smoke pot before you went to your first hour of class. You know, how odd is that? So uh, stay drunk pretty much most of the day after, after school. We have football practice and, and baseball. Uh, but uh, by my sophomore year, everything really started to change. I did my first line of meth when I was 14, and I remember, man, I feel like a rock star. I feel like a rock star. And began using meth, smoking pot, doing every, basically every drug I could. My uh, circle of friends changed. I quit hanging around certain people and started hanging more around other people. And I uh, had one friend that had a cousin. He was an older, older guy. And uh, my friend would pick me up when I'd sneak out at night during the week, school nights. And we'd go over at his house and we'd do methamphetamine and drink all night long and play cards. And I'd come back home and sneak in. <laughs> to the house. Uh, uh, by this time, I'd done moved back in with my mom and dad. They had bought a trailer, and my dad made me move back in with him, and I had a real strong resentment for that. I was already going the wrong direction, and here he was trying to tell me who I was and what I needed to be, and it wasn't much for that. So uh, anyway, the friend that I used to sneak out with, he ended up trying to commit suicide, and I thought, what in the world am I doing? What's going on here? And uh, I got off the meth, and I was still drinking, smoking pot and stuff for a while, and uh, went through all that. At the age of 15, things really started to change. I got into a fist fight with my dad, 
and moved out of the house. I took off walking with a pair of shorts on, nothing else. And a friend of mine, uh, his mom, let me move in with him. And I was very grateful of that and started out. Uh, she was a very nurturing woman. She loved me like I was her own, I thought. And uh, she would set up dates for me. And I would go visit with her friends and started making a little bit of money. And uh, this afforded me to buy more drugs, do more drugs, do more drinking. And uh, my friend that I had in my sophomore year moved away to Springfield, Illinois. I went and spent two weeks with him uh, that summer. And that summer, I was introduced to LSD acid. And that very quickly became my drug of choice. I uh, spent 14 days in Springfield, Illinois. 11 out of those 14 days, we were doing acid. Uh, I drove a car while people went around stealing stuff, robbing churches, robbing houses of uh, music equipment. And I played music, so I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the music equipment. But uh, try not to drag this out too long. I'm sorry, guys. Senior year of high school. Senior year of high school, my life was about to change for the better. Uh, had a girl. I seen the first day of school. I had a crush on her in fifth grade, and I thought, wow, I'm in love already, you know. <laughs> I got I to gotta get her. So we ended up getting together and uh, had a pretty lasting relationship. During our senior year, she got pregnant. And uh, so life was going to change. I knew, grew up, my grandfather always taught me, you're going to work hard, you're going to provide for your family. So I went to work out on the road operating heavy equipment and uh, had a wife and a kid at home. I'm 17 years old. I'm providing, doing pretty good, making pretty good money. But on the weekends when I'd come home, I'd bring some meth home with me. And the guys at work, I'd score it from them and bring it home, and we'd party on the weekends. And uh, my dad, by this point, had become a totally different person in my eyes. He, him and my mother accepted my son uh, and treated him differently than I ever been treated. It helped me to get some forgiveness uh, with my dad. But uh, the drugs were still prevalent through our marriage. Even though we had a kid, and even though I had a good job, and even though I was working hard, and I thought I was doing the right thing, drugs was still there. I was still doing drugs all through the week, and then I'd bring it back home to my family on the weekends. Uh, when I was 20, by the time I was 20, we had two kids. And I found out that the two kids I had was not mine biologically. And I didn't know what to do. Couldn't tell my mom and dad. They loved these kids, you know. I seen, you know, my dad every weekend, Friday afternoon, picking my son up, taking him with him to detail cars. You know, he, I was like, you know, I can't tell them that this little boy is not their grandson. I can't tell them that the little girl is not there. So I had to leave. 
But as I left, I got high. I stayed high. See, this is where things started to get heavy for me. I couldn't deal with what was going on around me. Instead of uh, using coping skills and to get by, I used drugs to numb myself with pain. And uh, that continued on. Uh, I formed a new relationship. Uh, 1996, got married again and had a little girl. Her mom told me, she said, I love you. This child's going to love you. You can't clean up. We're going to be gone. All right, I got this. I got this. So here I was already torn from another marriage and hadn't dealt with all the emotions of trying to figure out what to do with these kids that weren't mine that I already loved. And I have a child that's coming that is mine. So I cleaned myself up for a little while. And then I started sneaking around, doing a little bit here and there, thinking I can get by with this. She knew. She knew. She gave me many chances to clean up. And when she was three, she left and took my kid. And I haven't seen her since. Uh, ended up going on to, ha uh, she ended up getting adopted by somebody else. So at this point, I, I'm done. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. I start hanging around with people who's cooking meth. And when I started cooking meth, it took it to a whole new level. I felt a high like I'd never felt before. At the same time, I had plenty of dope to stay as numb as I wanted to stay numb. I began just, just thrashing and destroying everybody who was around me. You know, my mother, I don't, she probably, bless her heart, didn't know what to do with me, except maybe call in for an exorcism, you know, uh, threatening people's lives and just, just doing everything, going, traveling to Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, we'd go steal uh, anhydrous ammonia and cook methamphetamine in a motel room where there's people, you know, just crazy stuff. Anyway, it just, things just went to a whole new level, and I was at, the deepest of deep of my addiction. Uh, really started to spiral, and by 1999, I was facing 26 years in prison. Uh, was scared. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I didn't stop getting high. Uh, Facing uh, prison time for anything from driving without a license to uh, manufacture methamphetamine. Uh, I was lucky enough to get in drug court. When I got in drug court, I kept on cooking meth. I found ways to beat their drug test. And uh, five weeks from graduating drug court, from having a clear record, I got a dirty urinalysis. They caught me. Went to rehab. And come out of rehab, and I thought, well, I'm had. They're going to send me to prison for 26 years. I'm going back to face my charges. But God still had a plan for my life. He, he wasn't going to let that happen. The judge had mercy on me, and he said, Michael, do you want to stay in this program and get as much help as you can? And, uh, and then we're still going to turn you back over to face your charges. And I thought, well, yeah. I do, Judge. Yes, I do. But you see, at, even at that point when I was saying yes to the judge, 
I wasn't wanting to get sober. I just wanted to beat them. I just wanted to get by without having to be locked up. I wanted to keep on doing what I was doing. Uh, so that went on. Uh, I went back to face my charges. I ended up getting probation. Made it six months on probation and got a dirty UA. Uh, they didn't know it was a dirty UA, but they did once I walked out. When I walked out, I didn't go back. I went on the run. I was absconded from my probation. Uh, February 2003, they caught me. I just cooked the biggest batch of methamphetamine that I had ever cooked and took off running in the woods. Uh, the dogs got me. Uh, once I got rid of all my meth, I surrendered to them and went to prison. When I went to prison, I thought, this is it. I'm going to get myself cleaned up. Got into anger management classes, substance abuse, come out doing pretty good. About three months later, I was right back to work, doing what I was doing. Still on parole, still getting high. So I was keeping my composure somewhat, but I was still doing what I was doing. But in uh, February 2003, when I got caught, I went through the prison, and then uh, my grandmother died March of 2009. And at this point in my life, I felt completely alone. The one person who had always told me that you're so much better than this. This is not who you are. You can, you can be so much more. She was my, my Jesus at the time, so to say. You know, she was my encourager. She was gone, and uh, I was on a suicide mission. Nothing short of a suicide mission. I had no desire to live anymore. I wasn't really trying to kill myself. But I didn't care about living. Didn't care about living at all. December 2009, I got caught with a rolling meth lab, and I thought, this is it. I'm gone for good. I'm gone for good. This is it for me. Y'all ready for the good stuff? <laughs> Here it comes. January 2010, I met my wife, Rodina. Uh, we had a couple friends that uh, we were just going to go hang out, and uh, I met Rodina, and right off the bat, I knew there was something special about her. I felt drawn to her. I felt safe, and I didn't feel so alone. But I was a mess, and I didn't know what the future was going to hold for me. But uh, after meeting Rodina, it was about two weeks after we met, and she introduced me to her mom. And I'm thinking, oh, man, how am I going to face this woman? My reputation has so far preceded me that she is going to know exactly who I am. I can't let her know. Got to figure out a way around her, just like I did everything else. I was trying to ease my way around and make everything good while I could still go on doing what I was doing. But I met Redina's mother, Linda, in a time when I lost one of the only people that I knew loved me in my life. And I told this woman as I was shoveling snow in her driveway, I said, I think I love your daughter, but you're probably going to hear a bunch of stuff about me. 
Now, did I tell her that it was the truth? No, I didn't. <laughs> I lied. I said, oh, that's not who I am. And I went on doing what I was doing. But you know what? Any normal mother right then probably would have broke out an axe handle and went to beat me down the driveway and said, get lost, get on out of here, don't ever come back around. But she didn't. She didn't. She showed me love. She welcomed me. A couple months later, uh, Redina said, hey, how do you feel about moving in with my mom and grandma? Oh, no, I can't do it. Can't do it. How am I going to cook my meth? And how am I going to stay high? And but I did it as uncomfortable as it was, and God put me in a house with three women who loved me like I'd never been loved before. They showed me the love of Jesus. I had a new grandma. They started taking me to the cowboy church. Y'all been to the cowboy church? It's pretty good stuff. They would drag me to the cowboy church. We didn't say, let's go to church on Tuesday night. No, <laughs> no I'm high. I can't go to church. It's like, come on. Well, I wanted to be with Redina, so I was going to go to Cowboy Church. And I went to Cowboy Church, and I'm the farthest thing from a cowboy you ever seen. I don't like horses. I'm scared of horses. I'm scared of cowboy hats. I'm scared of, scared of anybody that has anything to do with, a, with horses. So, But when I would go into the Cowboy Church, so we're here at the Rogers at that time, I would feel something inside of me that I just I knew, knew. This is for me. This is for me. The Holy Spirit would just wreck me right where I sit, and I would just, tears would pour down my face, and I would just feel so wonderful. I didn't want to run out the door. I wanted to stay right there. I wanted to go back every chance I could. So uh, what, what I'm getting at here is, is God was moving. Before I knew it, God was raising me back to life. He was putting people and my path along the way, here you go. This one's going to help you. Here you go. This one's going to help you. Still getting high. Redina gets pregnant. I'm telling everybody, hey, here's your dope. I'll be back to get my money, but when the baby gets here, I'm done. Y'all have to find somebody else. I'm done. I knew I wasn't done. I tried telling. I told her. When Redina and I first met, I told her, I said, this isn't who I want to be. Well, Redina was the one who always reminded me, you said this is not who you wanted to be. You said it's not who you wanted to be. And that always stuck with me. So one night, I was high, and we were driving down 67 Highway, and right down here in front of the old Lucy Lee Hospital, I seen a book in the middle of the highway. And I said, that was a Bible, Redina. Redina said, oh, you're high, you're seeing things, you know. <laughs> Here, go on, go on. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm going to prove to you, woman. I turned around, and I went back. Guess what? It was a Bible. And I picked it up, and I was like, Whew. I get goosebumps right now thinking about it. I held that box when I looked at it, and I took it home and started flipping through the pages of it. It's a man named Larry Portwood, and he had gotten this Bible when he had been ordained 30-some-odd years ago, when he had become an ordained minister. I thought, Dean, this guy's got to have his Bible back. He's going to want it. 
Got to get it back to him. So we Google Larry Portwood and call him up. He lives over in Minor, and he said, yeah, I must have laid it laying on top of my car tonight. I was over there officiating my son's wedding. He said, but I'll be back over next week, and uh, I'll get it from you. All right, Larry, I've got your Bible. I'm holding on to it for you. So I hold on to this Bible, and I keep it. Weeks go by. No, Larry. Never hear nothing from Larry. Can't figure out what, why he doesn't want it. Kept asking him, why wouldn't he want this Bible? Anyway, goes on down the road. Larry never gets his Bible. I start getting myself cleaned up. I think I want to get clean. Things have went from cooking huge batches of meth to Redeen and I don't have any money. We've got a kid, and I'm dragging three or four boxes of pills from people trying to get it so I can make a little money and I can stay high and uh, come down to the point where we didn't have any food, we didn't have any gas, and I went to my mother and I said, I need to borrow $10, I got to get some cigarettes. She was like, yeah, I'll bet that's what you're going to get. <laughs> but she gave me the $10 and I got with two guys and we went to St. Louis, Missouri and bought three boxes of pills. And I come home that night, went out in my shed, and I cooked this batch up, got it going, and run to my car with it, trying to get out of the driveway and get everything off my property. And about the time the door shut next to me, I look over, and there's a little red-headed boy standing on the porch. He's saying, Dad, Dad. At that moment, I gripped the steering with white knuckles. I gripped my teeth. I said, God, I can't, can't do this anymore. I can't do it anymore. And I backed out of the driveway, and I run, run as hard as I could go. But you know what? I felt it in that moment. In that moment, God come in. All these things that had been happening along the way to soften my heart so that he could take over happened at that moment. That night, I went out, sold my dope, didn't sell all of it. I couldn't, knew I couldn't, wasn't going to get up the next morning if I didn't, didn't keep some of it. And I went back home, and I felt like everything was going to be all right. Felt like everything was going to be all right. I got high one time after that. That's been six years ago. And that leads me to somebody else. Got clean enough to pass a UA, and I'd always done outside work, and I thought, well, I'm going to go try my luck at this factory. And all the while, I was kicking my feet. I don't want to go to work at no factory, and can't do nothing in this factory. And... I get hired on at this factory, and the HR people take me out to the floor, to the lead person, and said, we're going to figure out where to put you. Okay. They walked me down to a man named Carlos Boyer. Carlos Boyer, raise your hand. People might want to talk to you when we're done. <laughs> Carlos is a preacher. God knew what I was needing. 
And he put me right there beside that man to train me. Trained me. And Carlos started speaking life into me. Started speaking the word to me and just encouraging me. It's one of the most men of God that I've ever met in my life. I love you, Carlos. Love you. Grateful for you. But it wasn't long uh, after I went to work there and, and Carlos started speaking life in me, I started going to church with Carlos. I feel the Holy Spirit move and find myself at the altar. and People would start coming from probation and parole and they was putting them between me and Carlos. So we got tag team. You know, I'm preaching the streets to them. Carlos is giving them the word. You know, and I'm handing them my phone number. Man, you call me if you get in trouble you know, tonight. Call me. I know this is probably getting drug out and boring, but... Uh, where I'm going with this is uh, God gives us who we need when we need it. You know, without that Bible in the road, without my wife, and her mom, and her grandmother, without Carlos and the Bluff Church. We came to the Bluff Church because we felt like God was leading us to do something more. For some reason, I just feel like I got to give so much. I need to give so much. You know, God has done so much for me, and I want everybody to know it. So we come here, and I meet people like Brett Trostel, Ron Glidewell, the Faust, and all you people. I just love you so much. You've, you've uh, given me so much life. Luke Elledge, I see you, buddy. Anyway, through all that, God has, has taught me to love, to be a, a husband, to be a father, and taught me to lean on his word and who I really am. Y'all see this picture right here? This is a representation of my life. I once was a hopeless dope fiend, and now I'm a dopeless hope fiend. I'm a dopeless hope thing. I got a little bit of a message for y'all, so don't run off yet. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Lazarus, because I've always referred to myself as, uh, as Lazarus. And until this week, I thought it was one thing. I thought, man, God just raised me up from the dead. He just plucked me right out of it. But just as even as I'm telling my story today, I can see that's not how it was. God raised me from the dead, but God knew I needed other people. So we all know the story of Lazarus where uh, he was sick, and Jesus said right from the beginning, said uh, when he heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. We believe that, don't we? I'm going to take you down to uh, 17 through 44. I'm going to read quite a bit of this, but it's going to lead me up to something, I promise. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think about that, and I think, that was probably my mom. That was probably Redina, 
crying out, God, where are you at? Why can't you save him? But Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept, and the people who were standing nearby, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed the blind. Couldn't he keep Lazarus from dying? I think that's a lot of the family members of addicts. That's where the, what they're left with. They don't understand, you know, what's going on. Why are they doing it? And they're crying out, please save him. Why can't you save him? We know what you can do, so why not do it now? Why not do it now? Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell was, will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth, and Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. That's where I'm going to go with this. Uh, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus rose him from the dead. Jesus brought him out of the grave. Who unwrapped him? The people that were there that loved him. So what we see when he comes out of the tomb, he's brought back to life, but he's still bound by the grave clothes. And uh, I find it interesting that Jesus lets the love of others to now take over. And I think that's what Jesus was doing for me. God was doing for me. He was placing these people in my life. And once I had been rose back to life, I needed people to peel that away. You see the Bible laying in the middle of the road. There's a layer that come off. A layer come off at that moment when I said, this Bible is for me. Can I stop for just a second? Because I missed something here real big. At Nordine, I knew I was missing something, Redina, I told you. The Bible, the Bible. I worked at Nordine, Carlos had quit, and I was standing at my machine one day, and there was a little man named Preacher Larry that we had seen often. He was a jolly little guy. He's about this tall, and just always a pleasure to be around. But he walked by my machine. Larry, Preacher Larry, what's your name? He said, Larry P. Wallop. No, Larry. Come on, what's your name? I need to know your name. I need to know your name. He said, Larry Portwood, Michael. 
said, I've got something of yours. And he pointed at me. He said, Michael York, that's your Bible. That's your Bible. If that's not God, I don't know what is. This man I'd never known, you know, it peeled off my grave clothes. How Larry knew, I don't believe I ever even told him my name. That was my Bible. Do I carry it every day? I don't carry it every day, but nonetheless, I feel like that Bible was for me. It was meant for me. Anyway, I believe this uh, should be a message to the church and for, you know, as followers of Christ, I think we need to be on the lookout for people who are being brought back to life, people that are still wrapped in their grave clothes, you know. Uh, we need to love on them. We need to show them Jesus. One layer at a time. One layer at a time. Uh, you never know what God's doing behind the scenes. And as you can see through my story, God definitely puts people in your path. And he puts you in people's path so that you can be the one to lift them up and show them a little love. I think the love, you know, do y'all believe love conquers all? I believe love conquers all. To me, this is uh, it's just a miracle. You know, I think about... Uh, what if I got cleaned up the first few times I went to jail? Or even drug court, or prison for that matter. It would have been temporary. I'd have got clean. But just like Jesus waiting to bring Lazarus back, even though he knew he was sick. He could have, he could have healed him of his sickness before he ever died, but he didn't. 28 years later, down the road, God's plan has come together in my life. He raised me from the dead, and he's given me the people that I need, and I thank you all. I love you all. I'm honored to have been able to speak here to you today. There's a lot more, but I feel like I'm dragging on. I just want to thank you all for letting me tell your story, tell my story. If there's anyone here that would like to talk about addiction, uh, talking about starting up a group, I want to open it up to the community, not just our church, family members, uh, people who are right in the midst of it. If you're high, come on. Come on. Let's talk about it. Let's work you through it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I love you, and I thank you for all that you've done for me, Lord. I'm so humbled today to be standing here, to be used by you. And I just ask that you never stop using me, Lord. Keep pushing me forward, Lord. When you say go, I want to go. When you say do it, I want to do it. But right now, Lord, I want to just open this place to your Holy Spirit, Lord, and just pray that you will move throughout this place, Lord. Right here in front of this stage, Lord, uh, in the lobby, in the rows here. There are people who are hurting, people that are struggling, people that need you. There may even be somebody here, Lord, that has never given their life to you. And I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would move on them and wreck them right where they sit, right where they stand. Lord, bring them back to you. 
Lord, we thank you for this day and this opportunity, God. I just pray that you will continue to work in this church. Lord, do mighty things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need prayer, thank you. God be the glory. God be the glory. Uh, if you need prayer, if you need to talk about salvation, we have many preachers in the room. We have, if you need to go out in the lobby of this church, I want the Holy Spirit to move through here like never before. Let's not restrict this morning what the, the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Let's break down all the walls and say, God, do what you want to do with me right here today, right here in this place. So if you need prayer or if you just want to talk, come forward, grab your neighbor, grab me, Carlos, Dave, Brett, anybody. Let loose. Let him do what he wants to do in your life. I love you guys. Love you, Michael. say, now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. We have triumphed over our enemy, our great accuser, because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, sharing what God had done in their lives. This morning, if you need prayer, if you know you need prayer, don't just stay where you are. I want you to move while we sing right now. I want you to move forward to me. Go forward, go to the back to one of our elders. And we want to spend time talking and praying to you this morning. Let's move. Seems like all I could see was a struggle. 